Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're with truly a leader of the thought leaders, a shaper of a generation, influential public intellectual, and recently rather famous for his cameo role in an MIT Gangnam Style video yeah. spoof where he confidently uttered, open Chomsky style. If you haven't guessed who our guest is right now, um, welcome to the EdCast, Noam Chomsky. Glad to be with you. Actually, that's probably the most, the second most popular thing I ever did, judging by the quantity of mail that came in from all over the world. The most important was uh, when I was on a, I shared a record with a group, a punk rock group called Bad Religion, and that was a, went over the top. Well, your calling is a YouTube <laughs> celebrity, and you didn't, yeah. it took you long enough to figure that out. Yeah. So today you're at Harvard to talk about Paolo Freire's uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, a uh, foundational work of critical pedagogy. Uh, the year is 1970, the book is published in English, and, and how does this book reframe thinking of education for you and for America? Well, it's important to remember that the original Portuguese edition of the book came out in 1968, English edition a couple of years later. And 1968 was a pretty exciting year uh, all over the world, but particularly in Latin America and particularly in Brazil. Unfortunately, Freire himself had been exiled from Brazil by the military dictatorship, and his book couldn't be published there, but it was known. Uh, that was the year of the uh, Medellin Conference of Latin American Bishops when they... Uh, adopted uh, uh, the what was called the preferential option for the poor, basically the gospel. This was under the aura of uh, Vatican II in 1962, which was a historic year for the church, turned the church back 1,600 years to the time before the Roman Empire, Emperor, Empire took it over. And uh, in fact, Vatican II was largely, a lot of the initiative was from Latin American bishops, uh, in particular uh, the bishop of the city from which where Freire was born, Recife, the Dom Helder Camara, was known as the bishop of the poor, and he was one of the prime movers in Vatican II. Now, that had a huge effect. There was uh, uh, mostly in Latin America um, the uh, bishops, uh, uh, priests, uh, nuns, lay people. Uh, went out into the countryside and uh, uh, were carrying out uh, educational programs of the kind that Freire was talking about, in fact, influenced by him, uh, to try to raise the consciousness of, of poor peasants uh, to study the Gospels. Th there's a reason why uh, the, the Christians were persecuted in the first three centuries. The Gospels is uh, heretical. It's uh, a radical pacifist. It's uh, the preferential option for the poor comes from the Gospels, and Christians suffered for it. And that happened again after 1962. Well, it was already beginning by 1968. That's one of the reasons Freire was out of the country. Uh, Dom Helder in Recife was one of the leading uh, figures in liberation theology. He was silenced by the dictatorship in 1970. Uh, then. And by that time already, there was a dual attack on liber 
Reformation theology, uh, partly by the Vatican, which essentially shut it down, but mostly by the United States, which carried out a major war against the church, uh, starting with the Brazilian coup in 1964 and on through the 1980s. Uh, many religious martyrs, uh, Archbishop of uh, El Salvador pretty much came to an end with the murder of six Jesuit intellectuals and, uh, on the, at the university in 1989. These are by U.S.-trained, U.S.-armed troops uh, un under the specific orders of the high command. Uh, and in fact, uh, the U.S. Army takes credit for it. If you take a look at the uh, talking points of the School of the Americas, its name's changed, uh, which trained Latin American officers, uh, they proudly say that uh, the U.S. Army helped defeat liberation theology, uh, leaving a bloody trail of martyrs. Uh, meanwhile, the Vatican, especially Ratzinger, who was the, kind of the enforcer, uh, uh, did it more softly. Uh, by 1972, when um, uh, Ferris' book came out in English, uh, the atmosphere was already quite different and the conservative bishops had taken over. The Vatican hand was very heavy, and the U.S. war was in full force. Uh, well, uh, th uh, that, that's the basic context in which it appeared. And his uh, uh, pedagogy of liberation, uh, a pedagogy of the oppressed, was very closely associated with the uh, preferential option for the poor, for the oppressed, and the pedagogic, there was more going on, remember, at that time. So Cuba had carried out its extremely successful uh, literacy campaign uh, a couple of years earlier, 1961, and that was kind of a model at uh, uh, some of the ideas that uh, Ferrari developed that came straight out of the Cuban literacy campaign, like the, uh, uh, the concept uh, of the literacy to the literacy workers who uh, go out to teach and to learn, and one of his various more sometimes people called more radical assumptions was that the uh, uh, the uh, opposition between the teacher and student should be reduced, maybe faced. They should learn from one another. Yeah, breaking because down the banking model, right? Breaking down the banking model. That was his. Uh, uh, one of his main uh, ideas that actually comes from the Enlightenment, where the image that was used and condemned was uh, thinking of education as uh, pouring water into a vessel. Uh, that's what was condemned. What, in fact, was promoted was pretty much what uh, he uh, fairly then developed, that the goal of education is to encourage uh, the learner to... Uh, uh, inquire and create, uh, learn how to discover, and so on. It's a very live issue in the United States right now. Yeah, do you the, see that manifesting itself nowadays, oh, too? Oh, absolutely. Since uh, a part of the reaction to liberation theology and, in fact, to the democratic impulses of the 1960s, it was a sharp repression. Uh, Harvard professor uh, Samuel Huntington uh, uh, argued that uh, uh, the schools, churches, and so on were failing in their duty, as he put it, of indoctrinating the young. 
we have to have more indoctrination of the young so they won't do things like uh, uh, protest to the war in Vietnam and all sorts of, you know, fight for civil rights and so on and so forth. And that goes on till the present. Uh, that's kind of the liberal side of the regression and reactionary side is much sharper. But uh, and it's, uh, it's essentially what teaching to test is. Teaching to test is the banking model. It's uh, pouring water into a vessel, and uh, you re reiterate what's in what you picked up, and a week later you forget it, and we've all had that experience in school. So where do you see the sort of treating the learner as a co-creator model sort of best uh, exemplified in, in American schooling right now? Well, actually, there's, a, there's an interesting debate going on in science education about this, mostly. Uh, right in the mainstream, uh, main journal of the AAAS, uh, Science, the editor about a year ago had a series of very interesting editorials uh, sharply criticizing the way science teaching uh, proceeds all the way up to colleges, you know, memorize the periodic table, uh, uh, learn what enzymes do this and that, uh, memorize the structure of DNA, but uh, without any of the excitement of discovery. And he presented alternatives starting with uh, kindergarten. So he gave a model that he says has been used where the kindergarten children, five-year-olds, were uh, given, uh, each kid in the class was given a, a, a dish with a number of objects on it, uh, pebbles, uh, stones, uh, 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 seeds, and so on. And their task was to figure out which ones were the seeds. So they had what they called a scientific conference. They talked about what you might try. I mean, the teachers there are kind of guiding it, you know, but uh, the kids kind of thought up ways of telling. And at the end of the process, they'd figured out which ones were the seeds. And at that point, each kid got a magnifying glass, and the seeds were uh, cut, and they could look inside and find the embryo that made the seed grow. Okay, that's education. They were learning how to discover things. Uh, when you get to a, say, a good graduate school, that's kind of routine, at least in the sciences. Unfortunately, not elsewhere. In that K to twelve, I'm curious your thoughts on you know the sort of state of higher education. Now we always talk K twelve, and you had mentioned that sort of technology. You likened it to a hammer. Uh, you can build a house. You can crack a skull with it. It's a it's a tool. And I'm, and I'm looking at edX, and I'm looking at hybrid learning and blended learning and virtual learning. And I'm wondering if the, this hammer is going to crack the foundation of the seemingly immovable post-secondary education model. Well, it's another hammer. <laughs> it, ha it has some good sides. It has some downsides. Uh, the downside is oh, you've been to college, so you know how it works. You learn more from your peers and from interchange and from just the casual discussion, you know, off in the coffee shop uh, than you do sitting in class. And that's missing. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's not the kind of interactive model, peer-to-peer, you know, peer, peer, uh, students and teachers, and teachers and teachers, I mean, the kind that should take place in a healthy learning environment. So that's pretty much gone. And it, it tends towards the teaching to test model. Uh, on the other hand, it has the advantage of um, enabling lots of people who uh, 
would never have access to these resources to get at least a taste of them. Yeah, access, benefit. scalability across the world, sure. All of them, yeah. Would, would you ever do one of those courses? Uh, well, if I was still, I haven't been teaching actively right. for a couple of years. Come out I'm, of retirement? You're a big yeah. YouTube star? <laughs> uh, I could imagine it. I, when I, I taught, uh, when I was teaching undergraduate courses in, at MIT, as I did for many years, I'd, uh, yeah, I'd have been glad to do that. But when you're teaching graduate seminars, it doesn't really fit. They're much more specialized. Yeah, when you, when you meet people in all your various capacities, you can chat about hundreds of different of topics from your entire illustrious career. What is it that you're finding most people want to know from you, uh, seeing you as like the greatest public intellectual of our generation? Like, what is the question that you always get, and what is the question that you kind of wish that they asked you because you have all this other bubbling information inside as well? Well, actually, I probably spend five or six a day, hours a day just answering mail. And it's uh, uh, preponderance is young people. Uh, the, uh, it varies from, from you know, some young linguist in, uh, in Ethiopia who doesn't know the name of any other linguist in the world, so wants to ask something about Bantu, which I know nothing about, from things like that. That's not the majority. Uh, to, uh, uh, th there's always, uh, every night, there's a number of letters from young people who are uh, dissolute, who basically want to do something decent in the world and uh, don't like what's happening and want to commit themselves to changing it, but it seems impossible mm -hmm. because the barrier seems so high that what can you do? And it's a, uh, the United States in particular is a pretty atomized society. It's not that different elsewhere, but more so here. Uh, people have uh, few interconnections, and the ones they do are pretty superficial, maybe Facebook or something. Sure, sure. But, uh, so that gives you the sen a sense of powerlessness. Yeah, I'm curious in this world today now, too, how, how you employ Freire's sort of theory from Pedagogy of the Oppressed of, uh, rather than having people come to you and say, tell me something, and then for you to not just fill up their vessel or to, to fill their bank with change, but to also sort of help co-create or co-learn together. That's difficult in the sort of digitized world. Well, you know, yeah, digitized. It's, it's not impossible. I mean, what you can, you know, what I try to do, I don't know how well it succeeds, is to just encourage people to uh, pursue resources that they can access. I mean. I can sometimes suggest resources, but uh, mainly what I try to suggest is I, I constantly get the question, uh, what can I read that doesn't have any bias? And uh, uh, there's nothing. Everything has a point of view. If we don't like the point of view, we call it bias. If we do like the point of view, we call it common sense or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, everything, and you should read, this is what I try to suggest is that you shouldn't just focus on the things that have the conclusion you like. You should read widely. Uh, uh, you should challenge. Uh, uh, you should recognize that everything uh, serious uh, uh, merits challenge and questioning. And you should uh, discern the perspective from which things are presented. If a writer's honest, he'll make it clear. But uh, and 
ask questions about it that aren't being asked. Yeah, even even in my research of you today, as a as a Roman Catholic, learning your perspective as an atheist or not an atheist because you're asking what it is I don't believe, it challenged my own way of thinking, and I was refreshed by it. So oh. I thank you in that and 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 finding opinions that you know, that really pushed me to think more critically about things. Um, that's just a brief aside. <laughs> okay, I'm uh, glad to hear it. Yeah, yeah. so thanks for that. Um, we actually have a question from our Facebook audience, so hopefully you'll still accept this as sure. a question. Uh, a, a girl, uh, Randy Zimmerman writes, how is it that the current state of public ed, um, how is it that uh, it's all related to our political climate? Um, and can schools change without a shift in culture of our politics? Well, actually, that's uh, reading Ferry's book is appropriate. That's one of the main topics he picks up. Uh, what he points out, he's correct, is that the educational system, including the banking model, which, of course, he harshly criticizes, uh, presupposes a, uh, a framework of uh, uh, cultural assumptions which reflect structures of power relations between oppressor and oppressed and so on. He says that a crucial part of education is uh, challenging that. That's what the uh, conscientization is for uh, raising consciousness is about. That's finding out uh, what structures of society you live in, why you and most of the students he's talking to are among the oppressed, uh, why you're trained and uh, to accept the nature of the oppression, which most people do, and uh, uh, f d discover for who you, you yourself really are and <coughs> what the world around you is, and education ought to be um, uh, uh, revolutionary. I mean, remember he was writing in the 60s when this was not an unusual idea that uh, and I think it's interesting to take a look at that question, too, in the context of whenever people say American education is, is flawed, let's look at what other countries do, and then taking into consideration not just the countries, but also the culture of the politics in those countries as well. Well, it's interesting that uh, societies with pretty much the same culture and social structure do vary. So one uh, very important uh, educator Dan Ravitch has uh, compared the school systems in Finland and the United States. Finland has very high uh, outcomes. The United States nowhere near what it ought to be considering the wealth of the country. And uh, she argues that it doesn't uh, reflect pay of teachers particularly, although well, that's a factor. Uh, but it does reflect uh, the way uh, uh, teachers are regarded and the way uh, the, the underfunding of schools and things like that. But she says in Finland, and this is true of most of the world, teaching is a respected profession. Actually, my wife was a, a taught here at the School of Ed for 25 years, and she'd go to international conferences. Okay. And what a uh, great plug for our school. <laughs> yeah, well, she, she'd tell me after going to an international conference, she was struck by the fact that uh, teachers almost everywhere are regarded as, it's considered a respected profession. Like a lawyer or a doctor in yeah, our country. Something like that, and they're, 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 this, you know, their dignity is respected. It's quite different here. Yeah. 
I mean, here it's a service worker of some kind. Yeah, that's shows. Uh, just for sake of time, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up this conversation. But last question is, as I was preparing these interview questions, someone said, oh, he knows everything. <laughs> and, uh, and you're always asked, what is it that you know? Um, my question is, you know, uh, no, what is it that you don't know? You know, is it like the, the Boston Red Sox of 2013, you don't know any of the players? Or where, where is the area that you'd have trouble with questions? Mainly the ones I concentrate on, because we really don't. Uh, we have our best guesses, uh, but uh, they're usually wrong uh, in the professional area where I work, uh, anywhere else. So that's why uh, every time a graduate student comes into my office, I have to rethink things I've been working on for 50 years. So uh, uh, we should be uh, a, a level of humility is appropriate. If you look at the history of sciences, it's kind of obvious what you thought you knew last week. Uh, Turns out to be wrong, you know, not totally wrong. Pluto's know, no longer a planet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so I think the answer to what you know is probably nothing. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and in and fact, it's you know, it's kind of been understood since the 18th century, since the collapse of Cartesian foundationalism, that uh, in the empirical world, you know, outside of mathematics and logic, uh, you can have uh, best surmises, but not certain knowledge. That's what David Hume called mitigated skepticism. It's not that you don't understand anything. You can understand a lot, but it's got to be mitigated. You know that there's no solid foundations that guarantee its accuracy. Noam Chomsky, thank you for not just filling up our vessels, but co-creating learning with us today. <laughs> thank you. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.